Why are you a Christian? A Christian or not, why do you express gratitude? Why do you give thanks to anyone? Or, or why do you give thanks for anything? Christian or not, why do you give generously to others? Christian or not, why are you here today? If I may be so bold to suggest it, there is only one right answer to all of those questions. There's only one right answer, and it's only a one-word answer. Why are you a Christian? Christian or not, why are you here today? The answer is grace. Grace. If you are a Christian, it is because in, in a special way, God has shown you His saving favor and love in Jesus Christ. You are here today because in a way common to all humans who live on this earth, God has graciously chosen to give you life and breath. Grace is God's undeserved favor. God's favor can be saving and His favor can be sustaining. And yet in either case... It is still undeserved. And, and maybe that is why it is so often hard for us, or maybe that's what it is so often hard for us to grasp about grace, that it is undeserved. We, we often don't get grace, I, I think. We, we, we often don't get it at a, a gut level. Um, we can explain grace conceptually. We can explain that it's undeserved favor. But when we experience the unevenness of life and love, we can actually sometimes resent grace. Uh, we, we can even despise it. You know, when, when someone else is chosen to serve the church family over you, and you're bitter about that, you've, you've got a problem with grace. When your, your co-worker is chosen for that promotion over you and you chafe, you're resenting it. You're resenting grace. We, we need a clear understanding of grace because without it, we'll have a warped view of God. You see, whatever view we have of God will mirror in our own lives. So, without a clear understanding of grace, we'll view God as unkind and turn out to be ungrateful. Uh, without a clear understanding of grace, we'll view God as miserly and will turn out to be stingy. Without a clear understanding of grace, we'll view God as distant, and will turn out to be more lonely than we ever thought possible. But grace is the ground of all of our gratitude. Grace is the germ of all of our generosity. And for believers in Jesus, grace is our life's goal. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about today from God's law. Grace, you see, it turns up in the most unlikely places. Yes, today, even as we continue our study in the book of Deuteronomy, we're setting the conclusion of a long section of laws that began in chapter 12. And Lord willing, what we'll see today from Deuteronomy 26 is this. Grace cultivates gratitude. Grace ignites our generosity. And grace emboldens our witness. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 26. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 167. 100.
and 67. And while you're turning there, let's just remember what the book of Deuteronomy is all about and where we are in this book. Well, the, the book of Deuteronomy is mainly comprised of a series of sermons given by Moses on the plains of Moab. The people of Israel, God's people, people of Israel have been graciously rescued by God from slavery in Egypt and led through the wilderness for 40 years and fed by God. Now they stand on the verge of entering the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham, the land of Canaan. And God, he has been good to fulfill all of his gracious promises, to make of him a, a great nation and to give his offspring a land. The truth is, is they didn't deserve it. As Israel prepares to enter the promised land, Moses reminds them of God's law and their duty to keep it in God's land. In that sense, Deuteronomy is, is looking forward. Over and over again, we hear in Deuteronomy, we'll hear them in our passage today, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and then that language is, is followed by some law, a statute, or a command related to life in the promised land, life before the people of Israel. And with our study of Deuteronomy 26 today, we're considering two particular offerings that the people of Israel are supposed to give once they enter the land. First, they are to give to God the first fruits of the land. We'll see that in verses 1 to 11. Second, they're to give the triennial tithe. And this was a tithe to be given every three years. So we'll see that in verses 12 to 15. And the chapter concludes with a fresh reminder of God's grace to His people. Grace that has brought them safe thus far. And grace that will lead them home. Well, this is what we think about in Deuteronomy 26. We're going to think about it under in these three sections under three headings. Gratitude toward God, that's point number one. Generosity toward others, that's number two. And grace toward us, number three. I hope that you can already see or hear something of the contrast of this material from what we thought about last week in Deuteronomy 24 and 25. Remember last week, those two chapters were all about protecting the integrity of their neighbor's dignity, inheritance, and livelihood. What's the antidote to greed? Well, it's grace. And that's the message of Deuteronomy 26, that grace cultivates our gratitude, ignites our generosity, and emboldens our witness. Let's turn now and consider our first point, gratitude toward God. And as we do, please follow along as I read Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 to 11. Now, as I read, I want you to, to ask yourself this question, or at least let it be tumbling around in your mind. As we read these verses, ask yourself, how is gratitude toward God expressed in these verses, okay? Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 to 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to give our fathers, the swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make a response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and 
laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. How is gratitude expressed toward God in these verses? Gratitude is expressed through giving a visible gift. It's verses 1 and 2. Through giving a, a verbal confession. That's verses 3 through 10. And through giving vibrant worship to God. That's the second half of verse 10 and into verse 11. In sum, the people of God give thanks to God for His generous and gracious gift of land. First, in verses 1 to 2, you notice there, gratitude toward God is expressed through giving a, a visible gift. And, and we cannot fail to miss Moses' orientation. The people of Israel are standing on the plains of Moab, a place that is not particularly fertile. And Moses is telling them that they're going to enter the land, conquer it, settle it, and plant crops. And not only that, but those crops will also produce fruit. And when they do, they are to bring the first of those fruits to the Lord in a basket as a gift. All of this lies ahead in the future for the people of Israel. Think of the faith it must have taken to believe these promises. But don't stop there. Think of the God who is making these promises. Not only does God through Moses command His people to collect the first fruits of the land, but as you can see at the end of verse 2, the Lord specifies the place too. The people of Israel must go to the place that the Lord God will choose. Now, in, in the early days, uh, that, that, that place would have been wherever the tabernacle rested. For a time it would be in Shiloh and Bethel and a few other places. But as the history of the Old Testament unfolds, we know that the fixed place would become the temple in Jerusalem. The main reason for this specification is to ensure that the worship of God takes place through the manner and the means that He alone prescribes. Worship, you see, is all about God. It is all about who He is and what He has done. It is about ascribing to Him the glory and honor due to His name. And if that is what worship is about, and it is, then, then of course God is not going to leave us to our own devices. He's not going to leave His people to their own devices. He's going to tell His people, He's going to tell us how we can glorify His name. Now just think about what God is instructing the people of Israel, His people, to do here in verses 1 and 2. He's commanding them to give crops that they do not yet have in a land that they are not yet in, from fields that they do not yet work. So imagine that you're an Israelite. Imagine that you're an Israelite here who has wandered 40 years. Just, you've just finished a conquest, conquered the land. You've, you've returned home after battle to the land that's been apportioned to your tribe. You've, 
You've begun the hard work of farming your land, and now you finally see that first fruit of your crop emerging, the first fruit of your labor emerging. Wouldn't you want to enjoy that fruit? I think you would. And it would be so tempting to eat those first fruits. It would be so tempting to, to sock them away and store them and save them. I mean, how, how do you know that more fruit is going to be coming afterward? You've not really farmed before, at least not in the last 40 years. There's, there's no guarantee that what's coming is coming. Isn't the safe thing to do to save that fruit? No. No, it's not the safe thing to do. It's not the safe thing to do because it's never safe to disobey God. He has commanded that his people bring him the first fruits and so trust him for the rest. And they can trust him. He has proven himself over and over and over again. He has provided food for his people day after day in the wilderness. And he will do it in the lands too. Is this not our hope too? Don't we have the hope of a promised land too? The promised land of heaven? Isn't that what lies before us as the people of God? Just like the people of Israel hearing Moses on the plains of Moab, we too are looking forward to a country we are not yet in, eating fruit we do not yet see. But we know that it's a certainty. The God who has been faithful will be again. We too have seen the first fruits of the new creation. Do you, do you recognize that, Christian? That the first fruits of the new creation have already emerged. And we have to trust God for the remaining harvest. Do you know what, or better yet, who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to, keep one finger here, but turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. I love these verses. I love these verses because Paul is trying to persuade, he's trying to reassure his brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus Resurrection is real. That Jesus got up from the dead and that, that they too, the church in Corinth, and, and we too, will also get up from the dead. And Paul makes his arguments on the analogy of first fruits. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. So he, here's what Paul is saying in these verses, in verses 20 to 23. He, he's saying that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. The harvest has already begun. The first fruits has already been given. Harvest always has first fruits, and then there's fruit that follows. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest, and all who believe in him are a part of that same harvest. So please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He is saying that the resurrection of believers is part of the same resurrection harvest that has begun in Jesus. Christian, you can be certain that you will get up from the dead when Jesus returns. 
The first fruits have already been returned to God. Yes, just like the people of Israel that Moses was speaking to in Deuteronomy, we are looking forward to a heavenly country we are not yet in. But God is faithful to keep His promises. We know that because He has been faithful to keep them over and over and over again. He, he has proved Himself to be our faithful God. Well, t- turning back to, to Deuteronomy 26, that's page 167 of the Bible's provided, in case your finger slipped out of there. Um, what we can see is clear that this, uh, this gift that comes in the first couple of verses, it's followed by a verbal confession in verses 3 to 10. They communicate God's faithfulness, don't they? You see, their beginning, the beginning of verse 10 makes clear that this was a confession that the people of Israel were to personally make as they brought their first fruits to the Lord. And we should notice several things about this confession. It's made in the presence of another, in the presence of the priest. And in that sense, it was a public confession happening at God's appointed place before God's appointed priest. It was also a confession made before God, as we can see there in verse 5. And this is really where the confession begins, there in verse 5. The confession is both personal and corporate. It's personal in the sense that the worshiper makes it himself. He expresses his faith. and he, Someone else does not stand in as a substitute for him. This is not a confession of faith made by his parents. It's not made by his spouse. It's not made by his friend for him. No, he is personally appropriating the mighty acts of God and his grace in history. This is a personal confession and still it's corporate. It's corporate in the sense that as an individual worshiper of God, he identifies with the people of God as a corporate body. You can see that in the the we language, right? We cried to the Lord, verse 7, and he heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt, verse 8. God's people have always been saved individually, and they have always been saved into a body of believers who have a common history of grace. Though we here this morning who are believers, though we may have been saved at at different points in our lives, different stages, different seasons, so to speak, we have a common history of grace because through our faith union with Jesus Christ, we have all died with Christ and been raised with Him as the Apostle Paul teaches us in Colossians chapter 2, 12, and Ephesians 2, 6, and Romans 6, 4. Jesus' history is our history. And here is where I think we need to focus our attention on the confession. The, the center of this confession is God Himself and what He has done in the history of Israel. Did you, did you notice that? Yes, the confession starts with Jacob. He's that, he's that wandering Aramean in verse 5. That's not a particularly positive description of Jacob. Um, Jacob, you see there, he, he goes down to Egypt. That language of going down in the Bible is generally not positive language either. The confession of of Israel really starts with a kind of humiliating circumstances as a nation, but then it shifts or or re-centers on God. It's a confession not of what Israel has done, but about what God has done. You see in these verses, God heard, God saw, God brought Israel out. God has the mighty hand and the outstretched arm. God performed great deeds. God performed signs of wonders. Just think of those ten plagues, right? In, in Egypt and the, the parting of the Red Sea. This is what God has done. You see here also in these verses, God brought Israel to this place. Think of the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Think of the provision of manna from heaven. God gave them this land. God filled their baskets 
with first fruits. This confession is centered on God and His strength and what He has done in Israel's history. See, grace is not about something we have done, but about something God has done for us. This is something crucially important about faith. We do not trust in the strength of our faith. We do not trust in the strength of our faith for salvation. We trust in the strength of the God who saves. You know, too often we find ourselves weak in faith. Have you ever felt yourself weak in faith? Weary. And, and when we find ourselves there, we, we make the mistake of looking at the weakness of our faith. Think of, man, I'm just a terrible Christian. I, I, I struggle. It's, it's hard. I'm weak. We start looking at our, our weakness instead of Christ's strength. We do not trust in the strength of our faith for salvation. We trust in the strength of the God who saves. I've long been comforted by the words of the Genevan reformer who said that Christ receives the weakest of faith. Why does Jesus receive the weakest of faith? Because faith believes in His strength. Our confession of faith as believers is centered on the great deeds and signs and wonders that God has performed in Jesus Christ. Our confession of faith is centered on Jesus, on His life, His death, and His resurrection. This confession of faith is a confession of God's strength. God has the power to rescue wanderers. God has the power to call up those who have gone down. God has the power to set free those who have been enslaved. God has the power to bring home those who have gone astray. This is what He did with the people of Israel. That was His grace at work and in action. That is what Israel would confess. God has saved us. God has sustained us. God has supplied us. Grace is why they would confess this with gratitude in their hearts. Is that your confession? Is your heart filled with gratitude for what God has done? Well, with this in view, it's not hard to see that the culminating expression of gratitude is worship. Did you see that in, in really the second half of verse 10, in the whole of verse 11? Worship and rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Instead of uh, worship, maybe some of your Bibles or your translations may say kind of prostrate yourselves before the Lord. The, same, the idea is really the same. Here the individual Israelite was to give humble praise and thanks and honor and glory to the God who has given him so much. He's even to give praise to the God who has well supplied the needy in the land. Through this worshiper's gifts, the, the Levites would be fed and the sojourners supplied. Thus, worship is expanding from one to the many. The blessings of God upon one were the blessings of God upon the many in Israel. And so they all joined in to praise God. All that God had done to save them and sustain them and supply them. This past week as I meditated on verse 11, I was struck by that little, that little word, all. It's so big, isn't it? That little word is so big. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. Often we don't really give thanks to God for 
all the good that he has given to us. Sometimes we even complain about the good things that God has given to us. What do I have that has not been given to me by God? What do you have that has not been given to you by God? Do you recognize that God owes us nothing? He owes us nothing. But how much has He given to each one of us here this morning? What we really deserve is hell for our sin and our ingratitude. We've rebelled against God. We've said, thank you very little, but I'll, I'll make up my own rules for life. I don't need you. I get along just fine in this world. But all the while, we're depending upon Him for air, to speak those words, for water, for sun, and, and so much more. We can't actually live truly independent lives from God. We can only pretend that we do. We've all sinned and rebelled against God. And what we really deserve is to be in hell this very moment. But we're not in hell this very moment. And we should give thanks to God for that. We should give thanks to God for everything else too. Especially His Son, the Lord Jesus. I wonder, can, can you tell when ingratitude when ingratitude is welling up in your heart, do you tell when that's present? Do you have an awareness for that? I can usually tell, but sadly it's only often kind of in hindsight. For me, I, I diagnose ingratitude in my heart when I'm angry or impatient and prone to complain. Those are, are my symptoms. Maybe some of them are yours too. When they turn up in our lives, we need to remember God's grace in our lives. How He has not given us what our sins deserve, but instead He has given us His Son and so many other blessings. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's find ways to express our gratitude to God for His grace. And, and not just at Thanksgiving, right? I mean, give thanks at Thanksgiving, to be sure, but give thanks every day. If you feel like you're struggling to give thanks to God, sit down someday soon, maybe, maybe even this afternoon, and start, maybe start just writing out a list of good gifts that God has given to you. Or, or, or take a calendar, and, and, and each day, maybe at the start of each day or at the end of each day, give thanks to God for something that day. Verses 11, uh, 1 to 11 of Deuteronomy 26, call worshipers of God. To express gratitude for God. For all that He has done, He rescued them, redeemed them, and brought them to this point. For all that He is doing, He is sustaining the people of Israel that very moment. And, and these verses call Israel to give thanks to God for all that He will do by bringing a gift of the first fruits of the land. We should give thanks to God for all that He has done, is doing, and will do in our lives. That's what verses 1 to 11 teach us that we should express gratitude toward God. Verses 12 to 15 build on the giving of gifts and, and they reveal how giving is not only an act of gratitude toward God, but it is also an expression of generosity toward others. This is the second point that we want to consider. Generosity toward others. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 12 to 15. 
When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, as with verses 1 to 11, so in verses 12 to 15, we're first introduced to a command only to be followed by a confession. Verse 12 tells us what the Israelite is to do and verses 13 to 15 tell us what the Israelite is to say. Both the visible demonstration and the verbal declaration are oriented toward generously blessing others as God has commanded. This law ensured the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow were well provided for. And and as we seek to understand what's being communicated in verse 12, one of the first questions that maybe pops into our minds is whether or not we're looking at the, the same gift that was mentioned in the previous verses or a new and different gift. Well, the language kind of, it appears, doesn't it, to be something of a continuation of the previous section, but we're met with new information. We're, we're introduced, I think, to a, a different gift. We're introduced with information concerning the tithing in the third year. So, so what's going on here? Well, I think, yes, Moses does use the language of, of continuation to see some continuity between these verses, but I think that continuity is, is simply in the fact that these are both oriented toward giving, toward being generous, toward generously giving either to God or to others. We've actually already seen the idea of a third year tithe in the book of Deuteronomy itself. We saw it in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28. Tithing is simply a, a way of designating 10%. So the idea here is that every Israelite farmer would bring 10% of the fruit of their land and so provide for others, particularly the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. This also clues us into the fact that this is a different gift from verses 1 to 11. It's different because it does not go to the central sanctuary. Remember, we were told in verses 1 to 11 that you've got to go to the place the Lord your God would choose, the place of of central worship. But here, uh, these gifts go to uh, the local Levite, where he can distribute them, to those in the community in need. And the Levites themselves actually needed these gifts in order to survive because uh, they were not provided with land of their own. Right? They were provided with central cities throughout the promised land, scattered throughout the promised land. The, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widows were also clearly those in need. They also, like the Levites, they didn't have farming property or lands to work. This, uh, this law here, in many ways, was a social safety net for the most vulnerable in Israel. And I think this tells us something about our God. He cares about the most vulnerable among His people. And this is still true for God's people today. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are My disciples. By what? By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. 
Think about what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-11. to John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, John's saying, and He has, we also ought to love one another. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, how we love one another and display God's generosity toward one another says something about our relationship with God. Our horizontal relationships with one another says something about our vertical relationship with God. Our horizontal relationships with each other proclaims something about our relationship with God. Do we love God? Well, do we love one another? Are we eager or reluctant to meet the needs of others? You know, not only was the individual Israelite commanded to give generously to the needs of others, but in verses 12 to 15, we also see he is to confess that he has been faithful to keep God's commands. Actually, there are both, both positive and negative statements in these verses. Did you notice that? On the one hand, he affirms that he has done what he ought to have done. And on the other hand, he denies doing what he ought not to have done. There are affirmations and denials. And the purpose of these affirmations and denials are for communicating beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has been faithful to God. He has not been selfish. He has upheld the ceremonial requirements. He has not served other gods. That's what the reference to offering um, to the dead refers to. And so we see that another purpose of the affirmations and denials is to express that this generosity toward others is undiluted, that it's undefiled. And perhaps the words of the Apostle James are springing into your mind. James, James 1.27, we read, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What about our generosity toward others? Is our generosity free from contamination? Perhaps even self-justification? I wonder, do you remember the, the parable that Jesus told, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Jesus told that parable in Luke's Gospel. Let's turn there. So uh, keeping one finger in Deuteronomy 26, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter eight, uh, 18. Verses 9 to 14. That's on page 1, uh, sorry, page 877 of the Bibles provided. Page 877. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And, and as we read this passage, I, I, want, I want you to notice how the Pharisee makes giving tithes. He makes giving tithes the ground of his justification before God. He is essentially uh, making it part of the grounds of saying to God, look, Look at this evidence of how worthy I am of your grace. I think Jesus told this parable in part because we're in danger of doing the same. Please follow along as I read Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. 
Don't you love it how Luke tells us what we need to be kind of aware of as we're reading this? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, among other things, the Pharisee uses his giving of tithes for his personal exaltation in the eyes of God. Just as our church attendance, our Bible reading and prayer do not earn us favor with God, neither can we use our giving to earn favor with God. You know, as human beings, we are naturally inclined to bring our good deeds to God, to show them to Him in the hopes that He will exalt us. We can contaminate good things like church attendance, Bible reading, and prayer and giving with our self-justification. I, I bring this up because as a congregation who gives very faithfully, you give very faithfully. There is a danger still for us. There's a danger for us. I'm not telling you to stop giving or to give less. I'm just encouraging us to be aware of the danger of justifying ourselves before God because of our giving. So how should we give? Well, we should give as the New Testament teaches us to give. So we're not involved in a three-year cycle of, of tithe or giving. No, the New Testament writers do not say that we must tithe. They don't say that we must give 10%. No, they, they actually say something more radical. They teach us that we should give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially. And we've got to understand something that the ancient people of God understood. The tithe was just a portion of what belonged to God. It was an expression that actually everything belongs to God. It's not as though the remaining 90% belonged to Israel and they could just do with it whatever they wanted to. It was still God's. The land was God's. He gave it to them to be stewards, to be stewards over His gift. It was a gift to His people. And they were simply returning a portion of what was already His. You know, sometimes when it comes to our giving, we, we ask the wrong questions. Often we're ask, asking, how much should I give? When the real question is, how much can I give? Well, how much has God given us? How much can we give that would bring Him honor and glory? True, we've got to pay our rent and our bills and our taxes and everything else. And all of that is honoring to God and using our resources wisely. Let's think through those things carefully. And let's give for the glory of God and the good of His people. As 2 Corinthians chapter 8 teaches us, all that we have is a, a grace gift from God. So let's give generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially. For some of us, 10% might not be that sacrificial. For some, that may be incredibly sacrificial. For some, that may be unwise. For some, that may be very wise. 
Let's pray through these things. Talk with another brother or sister in Christ. And think through how we can steward all of our resources for the glory of God and serve Him. How we might serve them, serve our brothers and sisters and serve the advancement of God's name in our giving. You know, these, these affirmations and denials of verses 12 to 14 are followed by a request for continued blessing from God. Turn back to, uh, to Deuteronomy 26. Um, I think that's a page in the 100s. I forgot what page number it is now. Deuteronomy 26. The, the, these, there's a request there in verse 15. And again, let me stress that this is a request for continued blessing. We're sometimes prone to read verses like 15 as kind of a quid pro quo, right? God, I have obeyed you, so now you should bless me. Um, we sometimes read these verses as an equation, don't we? Right? Command plus obedience to God's command equals or results in blessing. But look at verse 15 closely. The Israelite asks the Lord to bless and then note the words, as you swore to our fathers. See, this promise to bless came before the individual Israelite was even alive. He gave that promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. You see, here he's simply asking God to give him what he's already promised, to, to continue to be faithful to his promises. And that's precisely how grace works. Grace precedes our obedience. Right? We read from Ephesians 1 this morning that grace comes before the foundation of the world in Jesus Christ. Grace even precedes our faith. We, we read about God's gracious blessing in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's grace towards us is amazing. And this is what we want to turn to think about as we consider our third and final point. God's grace toward us. And as we think about this, please follow along as I read Deuteronomy 26 verses 16 to 19. And as we read, be on the lookout for there are alternating declarations in these verses. A declaration from God's people and a declaration from God. Keep your eyes open for that. Deuteronomy 26, 16 to 19. This Day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession, as He promised you, and that you are to keep all His commandments, and that He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that He has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as He promised. You see, these verses express Reciprocate, reciprocating dedication and devotion between Israel and her covenant Lord. We can almost think of these verses as vows in a wedding covenant. right? Israel is here dedicated to love all her heart and to obey. Similarly, Yahweh, God the Lord, promises to love, cherish, and to bestow His blessings upon His people. But do you see where the first declaration is made, who it is made by. Who's that first declaration of commitment coming from? I, I don't think it's Israel in verse 17. I think it's Yahweh in verse 16. Through Moses, Yahweh speaks. Grace begins and ends with God. He initiates. The first declaration, I think, 
of commitment comes in those words, this day the Lord, your God. See, Moses is telling the people of Israel, he, he's your God. He's, he's already made this commitment to you. Sovereignly and unilaterally declares that he is Israel's God. He claims his people as his own. And this is always the way it is with grace. This is the way it always is with God's saving favor. He makes that first move. As the good shepherd, he calls his people by name. It is then and only then that his people respond with their own words of love. And his people do respond, don't they? We read in verse 17, you have declared today that the Lord is your God. And we, we might ask, well, when did Israel do this? Well, in one sense, they, they did this over and over again as they formed their covenant agreement with Yahweh at Sinai. Uh, they were declaring that Yahweh was their God as they stood there and listened to His messenger declare His will. And as we'll see in the chapters that follow this one, uh, they'll actually audibly agree with this covenant relationship with God. And when they finally do get into the land, they'll renew their covenant yet again under, under Joshua. They may have declared that Yahweh was their God on that day, but they should declare that Yahweh is their God each and every day. It, it almost seems as if Moses is calling Israel to make this declaration in their hearts today. Right at that moment. He's, he's speaking to them. And I think we can almost hear Moses saying, uh, saying these words like this. You, you've declared today that the Lord is your God. Right? Uh, you will walk in all of His ways and keep His statutes and His commandments and His rules and will obey His voice. Right? You're, you're not going to do what your parents did 40 years earlier. They came to this point And they turned away. You're, you're not going to harden your hearts, are you? You're going to go in and inherit the land and the blessings of God. Yes, you've made this commitment. It's almost like Moses is urging them on. You've made this commitment. And God has made a commitment too. And aren't verses 18 and 19 filled with gracious words from our God? Israel is God's treasured possession. I mean, think of that for a moment. Treasured. Precious. God loves His people. Consider this description from Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Christian, God treasures you. You are precious to Him. He rejoices over you. He exults over you. He sings over you. Have you ever been so happy that it's annoyed other people that you're singing? I mean, this, this is how God feels about you. He loves you. He loves His people. And notice too, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 19, that he is committed to exalting his people. Why would he do that? Why, why would God exalt his people? God will exalt his people because that is how he will exalt his own name. He is lifting up those who went down to Egypt in order to display the greatness of his name. He is setting his people apart as holy so that he may set his name apart from and above all other gods. 
This is the high and holy calling of God's people to display His grace and glory to the nations. And just as it was with the people of old, so it is with the people of the new. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 1019. Uh, sorry, 1015. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And, and as, as we read these verses, I want you to consider God's grace toward us as the new covenant people of God. And here, Peter borrows language from Deuteronomy to impress upon us that we have the same high privilege and calling. Just as the ancient people of God were set apart and exalted to exalt God, so we too are set apart to exalt God. First Peter Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. There's that language from Deuteronomy. His own possession. That, what's the reason? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christian, these verses, they tell you what you are. Right? They tell you what you are. You are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. Why are you that kind of people? Why have you been made that kind of people? That there's that word, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you want to know your purpose in life? Do you want to know why God called you and claimed you as His child? He claimed you so that you might proclaim Him. He showed grace toward you so that you might show His grace to the world. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I, I want you to know that you can be a recipient of God's grace too. I want to proclaim to you the excellencies of Jesus. Friend, just pause and, and examine your heart for a moment. Don't you want to thank someone for all that you have? And don't you know deep down that you ought to thank God as the giver of all good things? Don't you know that He made you in His image and you are precious in His sight? And still, we all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned each to his own way. And this is what the Bible calls sin. We've all wandered and gone down. And the Bible reveals to us that our sin is actually primarily directed at God. It's Rejection of Him. It's rebellion. It's, it's a refusal to obey Him. It's demanding, it's choosing to live our own way. And for our sin, we deserve to be condemned. Punished in God's perfect righteousness and holiness and justice without end. This is what we really deserve. But... God is gracious. 
He has sustained your life until this very moment in part so that you could hear this good news about his son Jesus. In love, God the Father sent his son to earth. Jesus loved God the Father. Jesus perfectly obeyed. Jesus loved the Father with every thought, every word, with every deed, every single minute of every single day of his life. That's the kind of righteousness that God's law requires. Jesus was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, and yet he gave up his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. He died. On the cross, Jesus died, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. Pierced, bruised, and crushed for our transgressions. Jesus did all of this to make us his treasured possession. But that's not all our great Savior has done. Just as he promised, three days after his death, God raised Jesus as the first fruits from the dead. Jesus' resurrection assures us that the reversal of the curse of sin and death, reversal of that is underway. It shows us that Jesus can really deliver on his promises to save. So, so turn from your sins and believe in him. We don't deserve such a generous offer of salvation, but we may have it in Jesus. If we declare our faith that Jesus is our God and our Savior. Oh friend, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Declare with all of your heart. Believe with all of your heart and soul that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave so that you might be saved. And if you want to talk more about God's grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ, to talk about what God has done in Jesus to save sinners like you and me, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with the friend or the family member that you came here with this morning. We'd love to speak to you about this good news in Jesus Christ. And I want us to keep this good news in mind as we conclude. This morning we began by considering the truth that our existence is by grace. And if we have any hope of eternity with Jesus, it's because of grace. And this ought to lead us to express our gratitude toward God. Just as we saw the people of Israel express their gratitude toward God for His gracious work in their past and present through the gift of first fruits, We also considered God's grace toward those in need, the, the Levite and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. And as He called His people to reflect His own generosity, they were generous towards others. This reminds us as believers in the New Covenant that not only should we share generously with those in need in our church family, but we should also share Christ generously with all. And finally, Deuteronomy 26 revealed God's initiating grace toward His people in His unwavering commitment to His promises to love, to cherish, and to bestow all His blessings upon His people. Ultimately, those came in Jesus. And as we think on God's grace toward His people of old, we can take comfort as the people of the new. If our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He is, then we know that like the people of the old, the promised land of heaven is still before us. And just as they entered that land, so will we enter ours. Every aspect of God's grace toward us in the past, present, and future is the ground of all of our gratitude 
It's the germ of our generosity and it's the goal of our very lives. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.